have a, another brother with us like Jeff, loves the Lord and wants to share the Word of God. If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. I was talking to a lady yesterday, and she told me in her 40s, someone said to her, the Bible is the truth, and it has all the answers that you need to find about life and God. And she said, I was so struck by that, I started reading the Bible. And then she said, I decided I need to find a church where they teach from the Bible. And she was telling me her story of how she found a church and how she's learning and growing. If that's your experience, we really want to welcome you. We do believe the Bible is the truth. It's God's word, life-changing, and we'll help you to learn how to read it. We'll help you to learn how to apply it to your life. We certainly invite you to explore it with us. We're going through the Gospel of Mark right now, and our series is called Clarifying Jesus. Who is he? And then committing to the journey. Do I really want to follow him? And what does that look like? We're in the middle of the story right now. Jesus has just revealed to his disciples that he is the Messiah. So they get it. You're the Christ. But now he's dropping a bomb on them. Yeah, but the Christ has to suffer. I'm going to die on the cross. So in chapter 8, he just told them, I'm going to die on a cross. And then if you want to follow me, you have to be willing to die also and take up your cross. In order to encourage them, at the beginning of chapter 9 then, he said, but there's a kingdom coming after the cross. So, he said, some of you are going to get to see that kingdom. You come with me up on this mountain. And he was transfigured before them. Well, this morning we're going to pick up because they're now coming down from that mountain. They've just had this glorious experience where Jesus was glowing and showing that he's God. And they're blown away. I, I imagine... They're thinking to themselves, man, I can't wait to tell everybody what I just saw. So pick up with me in verse 9. It says, and as they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen. Well, that must have been a bummer. Like, it'd be like um, one, one guy took off from church to go golfing, you know, but he felt kind of embarrassed about it. And... Um, on his first hole, he hit a hole in one. And Peter says to him, Lord, you skipped church to go golfing. Why did you let him hit a hole in one? And the Lord said, because there was no one there to see it and nobody will believe him. So the same thing's true here in that they were all excited to tell everybody. And Jesus goes, no, don't tell anybody. Until the Son of Man should rise from the dead. Now, you got to grasp this. They could not understand that. That seems so basic, like, which part of rise from the dead don't you get? But they kept thinking, because Jesus did parables, that this is not a literal expression. He's really not actually going to die. So they're like, I wonder what he means by rise from the dead. It must be like, like um, you know, breaking out into a new born-again experience where you're just like a makeover or something. So, so they're like, what does he mean by rise from the dead? Because it, it can't mean literal. So... It says in verse 10, they seized upon that statement discussing with one another what rising from the dead must mean. We know it can't mean he's actually going to rise from the dead. And Jesus is like, yeah, no, actually, exactly what I meant. So these guys aren't dumbbells, right? So, so they knew a little bit about the Old Testament. The Old Testament predicted that God would come back to earth and set up his kingdom. And so if you were reading the Old Testament, the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, has a prediction. God said in Malachi chapter 
3 and in chapter 4, Behold, I will send to you Elijah. Now, if you've read your Bible before, you remember Elijah the prophet lived years before that, and Elijah never died. Elijah was caught up to heaven in a chariot. So the Old Testament ended with this. I will send Elijah to you, and he will restore the hearts of the fathers. And so every Jew anticipated that before God came to earth in his kingdom, that Elijah would come. Jewish people still think that when they hold their Passover Seder, they have a chair for Elijah because they don't believe God has come because they don't believe Elijah has come. So when these disciples experience what they just saw, Jesus is the Christ. He just showed us his kingdom. We must be in the kingdom. And so they're going, well, then we missed something because... Elijah, Elijah must have slipped past the goalie when we weren't looking because I didn't see Elijah come. Doesn't the Bible say Elijah has to come? So notice. They began, verse 11, they began to question him saying, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come? And Jesus is like, no, they're right. He said to them, Elijah does first come and restore everything. You're like, wait, they're going, wait, a lie? He, can't, he, he restored everything? Now, that, that's a tough phrase because the Old Testament said he will restore the hearts of fathers to the children. He, he will bring spiritual renewal and revival to families. But it doesn't really say he would restore everything. And so I think, I think this isn't to say that when Elijah comes, he'll take away the curse and the world will be perfect. But what's, what's tricking them is like, well, wait a minute. I don't think he has come. But notice what Jesus says. He says, yeah, yeah, no, Elijah's coming just like it was written. But then verse 12, he says, but guys, I want to go back to something I've been saying. He goes, how is it written that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? So because the first time he told them that, Back in chapter 8, he said, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And Peter grabs him by the neck and he says, don't ever talk like that again. I rebuke you. You will never suffer. And so they come down from the mountain. They're like, wow, the kingdom must be here. Where's Elijah? Jesus says he came. But wait, can we get back to what I said? How is it written that this, the Messiah is going to suffer? That's what I want to talk about, my sufferings. We're going to come back to that. But by the way, he says, if you want to know about Elijah, verse 13, Elijah has indeed come. And they're going, well, I missed him. And Jesus is like, no, you didn't. His name is John the Baptist. And they're going, no, he's not Elijah. And Jesus goes, yeah, he's the Elijah that was predicted. You see, when God predicted that Elijah would come, they took it that it would be the literal Elijah, when in fact, the idea was a figure like Elijah. So John the Baptist dressed like Elijah. He preached with power like Elijah. When it was predicted that he would born, be born, the Bible says, he will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. So Jesus says, look, 
I'm here, I'm coming, I'm going to do my cross and kingdom, and Elijah has come. But then he says, but before we leave that subject, don't miss. Do you remember what happened to Elijah? Verse 13, Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they wished. Oh, yeah, well, wait, what are you talking about? Well, think, guys, what did they do to John the Baptist? Some of you knew John the Baptist before you knew me. How'd that end up for him? Herod just killed him. Jesus is like, yep. Elijah came, and how'd that go? They killed him. And where it gets really deep is when Jesus said they killed him just as it is written of him. Now, those of you who read your Old Testament, you're going, where does it say in the Old Testament they're going to they're they're kill Elijah? It doesn't say that. Well, it sort of does, because when Elijah killed the prophets of Baal, Jezebel said, I'm going to kill you, Elijah. And so Jesus is probably alluding to this idea that throughout history, God's people suffer and are killed. And so... They're worried about, where's Elijah? And Jesus goes, John the Baptist was Elijah, and they killed him. But while we're on the subject of suffering, I'm going to suffer. Well, at that point, they come down from the mountain. Meanwhile, just like a good movie, meanwhile, we switch scenes. When Jesus went up on the mountain, he only took three disciples with him. The other nine were down below, and they weren't just sitting around playing cards, waiting for Jesus to come back. They were doing what they always do, preaching and trying to cast out demons. Only this time, they hit a bump in the road. They tried to cast out a demon, and it didn't work. And the Pharisees, who hated Jesus, were fighting over that. They're going, see, you guys are fakes. You're imposters, and you're, you think Christ is so powerful. You're a bunch of losers, and all the crowds listening And the disciples are like, yes, we can. And they're going, no, you can't. Meanwhile, Jesus comes up like, hey, what's all the commotion here? How did, for our Brits, what's all the argy-bargy? Remember that? Argy-bargy is like a big fight, so don't have an argy-bargy on the way home. So there's this big debacle going on. So let's see what happens. It says in verse 14, when they came back to the disciples, they saw a, a large crowd around them. And some of the scribes were arguing with them. So they see Jesus' disciples and the scribes yelling back and forth. And immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and they began running up to meet him. People love to watch arguments, right? And fights and quarrels, you know. You go on YouTube, oh, I want to watch this. So the fans are all just watching. Ooh, this is good, watch this. And then they spin their head and they're like, there's that guy, Jesus, who does miracles. And so they come running over to Jesus. And it says he asked them, but I think here he's asking the disciples, the other nine, hey, what are you guys, what are you fighting about? What are you guys arguing about? Well, before they could answer, this one guy in the crowd, you've noticed this, there's always a a loud mouth in the crowd, somebody who's going to be like the spokesman. He speaks up. He says, teacher, I brought you my son. He's possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. Now, when I read the description of him, it sure sounds to me like the kid had grand mal seizures. Read how it's described of him. 
He says, whenever it seizes him, this demon, verse 18, it dashes him to the ground, he foams at the mouth, he grinds his teeth, and stiffens out. Now, from a pure medical description, that sounds very much like a grand mal seizure, right? So it raises a lot of questions because people today think, oh, the Bible's not for today. We all know that seizures like this are simply brain chemistry and medical things, and we just need to take medicine. And while I would grant that, and I think that's true, I think we need to try to learn as Christians to balance the organic and the satanic, the spiritual, the emotional, the physical, and the spiritual world. So, something like this. Just because a person, say, has schizophrenia or multiple personality disorders, I'm not going to say, oh, they're demon-possessed. Just because a person has a seizure, I'm not going to say, that seizure is because they have a demon. But I think perhaps in our culture, we go to the other extreme. We don't have any category for demonic-induced illnesses. And we need to realize that, that, that sometimes it can be a combination of both, and we don't want to go hastily into any direction. Of course, we would never say, hey, if your child has a seizure, don't get medicine right? But I think sometimes we also have to say, hey, maybe we need to pray over this person as well. And so any of you that want to discuss that, just keep that in the back of your mind. Christians can be such extremists. You don't need any medicine. Just pray to Jesus. But then other Christians are are the opposite extreme. It's always just medicine. Sometimes it's both or either or. And so in any case, Clearly, the Bible teaches here that this was not a medical malady. It was a demonic malady, that this child had a demon. And the disciples were powerless to cast the demon out, which must have been frustrating for them because they already knew how to do this. Jesus had already sent them out, and they were getting good at it. And they're like, Peter, whichever of the three's down there, he's like, I got this one. <laughs> Nathaniel's like, get out. It doesn't work. Philip's like, no, 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 you, you did it wrong. You didn't, you got to snap your wrist. His didn't work. So now they're frustrated because they can't do it, right? So Jesus looks in verse 19. This is really important. He answers them, and he's, and he's frustrated. He says, oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring this boy to me. Now, one of the things that we have to question here is who is he, he ticked off at, okay? Because it says, He said to them. At first, I thought he's talking to the disciples like, you doubting Thomas idiots, I give you one job to do to cast out demons, and you can't even do that. But I don't think he's talking to the disciples here. I think he's talking about these Pharisees, these religious leaders who were obstinate to Jesus. No matter what he did, they wanted nothing to do with believing in him. So this is something that's really important to learn as a Christian, When you deal with people, we need to learn to have wisdom. Not everybody needs the same way of speech. This is particularly true of parenting. If all you do is lecture and come down harshly, it's not going to work. The Apostle Paul said, we must warn and teach everyone with all wisdom. We need to know when to be very gentle, compassionate, and tender and went to be very firm, 
And sometimes that's a tough call. Jesus, it says, a bruised reed he would not break, a smoldering flax he would not quench. Sometimes pastors and spiritual leaders can be so harsh on people. You have to sort of get a, a picture here and say, are these people being hard and obstinate or are they just broken and needy? So Jesus, if you watch him, sometimes he's so tender, the woman caught in adultery, neither do I condemn you. But with the Pharisees, he says, you wicked serpents, you sons of the devil, you twice sons of hell, you rotten graves, you're going to perish. And so you're like, wow, Jesus was mean. No, he wasn't mean. And so even as a pastor, the Bible says that we are to help the weak, admonish the unruly. But as you're discipling people, there's a place to reprove them strongly. The Bible says in Titus chapter 2, some people need to be rebuked strongly that they might be sound in the faith. And so Jesus here is strongly rebuking the unbelief of the religious leaders. So this is, this is crazy. Look at verse 20. So they brought the boy to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into convulsion, and falling to the ground, he began rolling about and foaming at the mouth. And he asked the father, how long has this been happening? And he said, from childhood. Now, the first thing I want you to see here, and this, this bothered me, is when demons meet Jesus normally, they, they fall down like puppies, right? <laughs> Are you going to kill us? Are you going to kill us? Man, this was a nasty demon, right? Even to the end, in the face of Jesus, who he knows is going to throw him into hell, he's going to bite bitterly. And it reminds us of the nature of sin and rebellion. The Bible says in Revelation 9, during the time of the great tribulation when God pours out hailstones on men, they'll gnaw their tongues in pain and blaspheme God. And so this demon's not going to go without a fight. And so in his opposition, he, he, he attacks the boy. And so Jesus wants some more background. Now, listen. Try to put yourself into this parent's role. Any parent who has a child with special needs, the heart breaks you experience. I don't know that there could be many things more painful than this. He says, he's had this demon from childhood, which again is mind-boggling. Like, we have these little categories. Oh, you only get demon-possessed if you, if you play Ouija boards, right? No, it's more complex than that. Secondly, it says, is that often has thrown him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. Imagine what that would be like. Every day you're, you have to watch your kid for fear that the demon's going to throw him in the lake or throw him in a fire. What torment this man experienced as he, as, as he helplessly hoped that someone could help his kid. So in desperation, he's thinking, Jesus, you can do it. But notice what he says to Jesus in verse 22. He says, but if you can do anything... Would you take pity on us and help us? Now, somehow he was picking up about Jesus. He's a merciful guy. Please, Jesus, just take pity on me. But here's where he kind of fumbles. I don't really know if you can do anything, but if there's anything you can do, right? Here's why that's a problem. To say if you can do anything is to not yet clarify Jesus, okay? Because as you get to know Jesus... That's not even on the docket because, of course, he can do anything. He can do everything. So at best, this guy's thinking of Jesus like an Old Testament prophet. 
I don't know how much muscle you have in the spiritual realm, but if you could do something, man, I would really appreciate it. And Jesus is trying to bring him to a place of deeper faith. Please, don't just look at me as a guy who might be able to come through if I really muscle it up. I'm God. All things are possible. So, so he pushes it back to the man, and he says, if you can do anything, verse 23, he says, the issue isn't my ability. The issue is your willingness to trust me. He says, all things are possible to him who believes. So he wants him to move from that state of saying, I wonder if he could do this to I'm confident that he can do this and I believe that he's going to do that for me. Sometimes this is the way people come to salvation. I do believe that Jesus died for sinners. I talked to somebody just last week. Yeah, I do believe that he died for sinners and I I do believe that, that he could forgive me. Yeah, but do you believe that he's going to save you right now as you call on him? Well, I don't know. So, so Jesus says to him, dude, what I want you to do is, is, is step out of the boat and trust me. Do you believe that what I say about myself that I can do? And I love this guy's answer because I can totally relate to this, and I hope this will become a great comfort to many of you because the guy didn't go, well, then Jesus, why didn't you say something? Let's get this done. But instead, look at his answer. The first time I heard this verse, I wept because I was having a great burden in my own life. And I went to my pastor, and I was like, Pastor, I don't know what to do. And I was crying. And he read me this verse. And it just blessed my soul. The guy says, I do believe. But help me in my unbelief. That ring true to you? You're like, there's times I know that God's going to come through, but I'm struggling I feel like my faith is like a tiny little thread. I do want to trust you, Lord, but it's so hard. My mind starts racing. Remember this. It's not the amount of your faith. It's the object of your faith. The Lord Jesus. And whatever your burden is, right, if you can say to the Lord and cry out, Lord, I do believe, would you help me in my unbelief? What a great comfort. You don't have to be a super Christian to do business with Jesus. You don't have to have extraordinary faith. Just come to him in your brokenness and your weakness, and the best you know how, say, Lord, I want to follow you. I want to trust you. I'm struggling. He asks for help. You think Jesus goes, oh, no, God helps those who helps themselves. No way. Jesus says, God, I understand. The Bible says, draw near to the throne of grace, and he'll help you. So cry out to Jesus. You're like, Lord, I've been praying about something. It's not working. And Jesus goes, well, it's possible if you believe. Well, then Jesus sort of gives us the background as to why these guys couldn't do it. Verse 25, when a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, and it came out of him. And it threw the boy in convulsions, and everyone thought he was dead. Verse 27, Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up. And when he had come into the house, his disciples began questioning privately. Hey, Jesus, why couldn't we cast it out? Now, I I get that. I would have been like, yo, Jesus, I did. I've done it 20 times now, and I never missed. You know, throw me a bone here. What, What was I doing wrong? And Jesus goes, here's something you need to learn. He said, this kind cannot come out 
by anything but prayer. So you say, ah, well, here's what they did wrong. Right before they tried to cast it out, they should have said, dear Jesus, help us cast it out. It's gone. I don't read anything about Jesus saying, could you guys give me a minute to pray and then I'll cast it out? This prayer is not prayer at the point of crisis. It's prayer prior to the crisis. And this is really important. When it comes to the Christian walk, you cannot wait to get your prayers on when your problems are at their pinnacle. It's way too late. You got to get your prayers on way before the problems come. And you're like, how do you know that? Because Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. How often is that? Right? And in that same prayer, he said, ask the Lord, lead me not into temptation. I really want to encourage you to think about something. Your victories, your power with God is not taking place primarily because you appeared in the public. It's because you got power in private through prayer preceding that. It's our time with God in secret that sustains and strengthens us for when we're in this critical place in public. So let me give you a very practical suggestion. As you pray regularly, ask the Lord, Lord Jesus, would you strengthen me so that when I come into difficult situations, I don't fall into temptations? When I face trials, Lord, would you strengthen me? And here's an exact verse you can pray, Colossians 1.10. Lord, would you strengthen me with power so that I can respond with steadfastness and patience? Instead of saying, I'll wait till my husband's gone off on me or the kids are going crazy or my boss provokes me and then I'll go, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be patient. Well, yeah, I've got no patience left, right? We get alone with God ahead of time and we learn to pray for faith and strength and courage so that then when we come to these difficult times, the reason that these guys couldn't cast it out is because if you went into their prayer closet, you would have found that there was a lot of cobwebs. And there's a million reasons why our prayer closet gets filled with cobwebs. I'm too busy. Ah, I, I don't have time. I'm out there serving Jesus. And Jesus is going, one indispensable thing that you have to have in your Christian walk is time alone with God. Time in prayer where you're asking the Lord, where you're thinking about his promises, where you're building your faith so that when you meet these points of suffering, it's not a sudden surprise. You, you with me? Does that, that make sense? So let's, let's add that to our Christian walk. As I'm discipling people, we're praying for one another, not in the crisis, but before it comes. Lord, strengthen me so when I'm tempted to do something stupid, I already have some spiritual reserve. Great example of this is Daniel. Daniel knew that they were going to offer him food that would have caused him to sin. It says... Daniel purposed in his heart. In other words, he was prepared ahead of time that he would not defile himself. So praying ahead of time that when we face trouble, temptations, and sufferings, that God will be there with us, that he will protect us and give us power to be useful to him. Meanwhile, Jesus is like, okay, I've told you Christians are going to suffer. Here's an example of how to face suffering. Don't, don't miss this. 
The devil does not like Christians. The devil wants to make your life difficult. That's biblical. Satan prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Knowing that, the Bible says, be sober, be watchful, be in prayer, take up the armor of God so that when we do face these routine conflicts and suffering, my wife and I had um, quite an argument yesterday. And you know, I said to her this morning, crazy, isn't it? We've been cruising along so well for so long. We're getting ready to teach a, a marriage thing. And here we are saying mean things to one another. Now, I know some of you are like, oh, you sinner. We never have that. But just have mercy on me. It's only a little bone here, right? I'm still in the process. All right. So now Jesus is like, guys, could we get back to the main thing? You still need to get back to understanding the cross. I introduced it to you. You missed it. You rebuked me. I hinted at it when you talked about Elijah. How's it written? I'm going to suffer. So could I get a timeout? Look what he says. And from there they went and began to go through Galilee, and he was unwilling to let anyone know about it, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered up into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he had been killed, he will rise three days later. Now, there's nothing in my mind that's really complex. I wonder what that means in the Greek, right? I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to rise three days later. But look at the next verse. But they didn't understand this statement. What, what, what's so hard to understand about that? Isn't it frustrating when parents say, you feel like your kids aren't listening? By the way, I've got a magic cure for this. Man, kids are smooth. Didn't I tell you to take the trash out? And I told you if you didn't take the trash out, then you're going to be grounded. Oh, you can't ground me, Dad. I didn't hear you. So I heard a preacher came up with a brilliant, brilliant answer to that. He said, from now on, when I'm giving you instructions and you're making eye contact with me, if you don't do what, what I told you to do, I won't necessarily punish you just because you didn't do it. You will be punished because you didn't hear me and you didn't listen. And you wouldn't be, you'd be shocked. A miracle happened. Their hearing was healed. They suddenly were able to heal. Hallelujah! Right? So Jesus is saying, I'm going to die. And they're going, huh? Yesterday, my wife and I were having coffee, and our daughter sent us this beautiful little picture. And I said, oh, that's a great picture for teachers. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put that up on, so I could show it to my students. And my wife went, ha, ha, ha. And then a minute later, she goes, hey, I'm going to put that picture up um, to my students. And I go, yeah, I... I just said that. She goes, what? I go, yeah, I said I was going to put it up, and you laughed, right? You ever have that? Like, you just finished saying something, and somebody else said, like, I just said that. Well, Jesus keeps having that moment. I'm going to die, but this is different. It's a spiritual blindness. They cannot understand, and it's true today. You can point people to Jesus and say he died for your sins, and you might as well be talking to a wall because Satan is blinding them. But what's even worse is... This shows the ugliness of our heart. Jesus wants to talk about his suffering. And look what they want to talk about. It's scary, right? 
and he knows what they're talking about. Like I can hear really well. I was in the doctor's office the other day, and I was really far away from the front desk, but I heard them saying, yeah, it's Mr. Rich, patient, Mr. Allen, blah, 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 blah. And I said, hey, I just want to let you know I can hear you. And they're like, oh. I said, yeah, I can hear really far, right? So Jesus hears what they're talking about. He's like, I'm going to die. And he knows they're like, huh? So look at this. And they came to Capernaum when he's in the house. He began to question them. Hey, guys, what were you talking about? I know what I was talking about. I was talking about dying on the cross. What were you talking about? Verse 34, but they kept silent on the way. Why? For they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Is that me? <laughs> like, wait a minute. Your leader just told you he's going to die, and you're going, I'm not bragging, but I'm just saying, but I'm greater than you. Matter of fact, when, we, when he starts this kingdom thing, you're going to be my lackey. Like, you're going to be taking notes and carrying my bags. And Peter's like, no, he let me walk on water. And John's like, he loves me more than you. And Thomas is like, you, he loves me because I overcame my doubts. They're arguing about who's greater, okay? Now, at first, we want to throw these guys under the bus and smack them and go, these arrogant, narcissistic people. But you know what? That's us. If you can't connect that with your soul and realize how quickly we make it about us, do some soul searching. Like the next time you look at a group picture, somebody takes a, a group picture, right? And you say, let me see that picture. You know exactly where your eyes go. You don't look at your cousin and say, oh, are their eyes open, right? Everybody else could look great, but if you look crazy, like, oh, that's a bad picture. We are extremely narcissistic. That's why in our culture, we've got mirrors everywhere. It's not a matter of do we think about ourselves. It's how often do we think about ourselves. And it's called a desire of vainglory. One of the terrible things about being a fallen sinner is we try to teach people it's not about you, but we're like, yeah, but it really is, right? Is that these guys are jockeying for attention and prestige and greatness. And Jesus goes, guys, come on. Sitting down with them, he called the 12 and he said this, do you want to be first? And they're like, yeah. He goes, good, be last. Wait, how am I going to be first if I'm last? You want to be first? Be a servant. There's an extra biblical document from that time that said, how could anyone be happy and be a servant? Right? I got to show my mad skills. I think one of the biggest things that we as Christians are constantly learning is that number one, while it doesn't come natural, when we learn to serve other people, it's joyful. It seems so weird, but when we put others first, it actually is really quite fun. It seems crazy, right? But learning to, here, you know, let me get the water. You know, I see this in sports. We've got some of our basketball coaches here. You know, the freshmen carry the water, you know. A senior, he doesn't carry the water. That's for the, for the servants, right? But as Christians, right, Christ is teaching us in my mind, if you want to be great, you posture yourself as a servant to my servants. You're not here for, for you. You're here for them. And so Jesus says, let me give you an example. Kids. Kids in that culture were nothing like kids in our culture. We're, uh, I hate to say this, but we're messed up. Americans are messed up, and you might not agree with me. We're messed up with our pets, and we're messed up with our kids. 
We have them way too high on a pedestal. I get that you love your kids, right? But, but most parents, our kids are like, they run the show. Everything, life revolves around our kids. That's not biblical, right? It's not all about our kids. And so in that culture, kids were not like all about them. So when grandma comes to me and says, Pastor, I haven't showed you all the pictures of my grandchild. I go, thank you, and I really appreciate it, right? It's cool that we have 5,000 selfies of our kids. In fact, I now have a selfie stick. I go around, and if I see you have 5,000 selfies of yourself, I hit you with my selfie stick. Like, <laughs> let's stop being so about ourselves. So Jesus puts a child as an example. Children don't know better yet, and so we laugh at them. So you say to a little kid, hey, you look cute in that dress. And they go, <laughs> I know. And we're like, <laughs> he said, I know, right? They're innocent. They're, they're still sinners, but, but they haven't learned to play the game. We think it. You're like, hey, that shirt looks nice on you. And we're going, nah, it's just a shirt. But inside, you're like, you're darn right. In fact, it's not the shirt. It's, I look good, you know? You're, you're like, I don't think that way. You do so. You're a sinner, just like we all are. So we have to naturally come to the word and say, Jesus, this is going to be a journey. This was really hard. These 10 guys are thinking, who's going to be chief in command? And Jesus going, I got a lot of teaching for you. So as we leave today, let me just say a couple of things. Number one, remember that as a Christian, you're going to suffer. Many of you here are suffering in a relationship. You're suffering with some mental illness. Some of you are suffering with addiction. Some of you are suffering because of finances. Some of you are suffering because... Someone has hurt you. You've been abused. Some of you are suffering for Christ, for the gospel's sake. But I want to encourage you that while our life is full of suffering, that ultimately the first thing we need to do whenever we suffer is to look to the cross. You see, when the Hebrews were suffering, the, the apostle who wrote to the Hebrews, he said, look, you haven't suffered to the point of shedding blood. Consider him who suffered such hostility on the cross. So first of all, keep looking to the cross. They're talking about their sufferings. Jesus goes, think about my sufferings. Secondly, realize that we've, we're going to have suffering. Satan's coming after us. So how do I face that suffering? By prayer. Not by complaining. Not by being a stoic and going, I can do this. But prayer. And as I pray, I ask God to give me faith to endure and accept my sufferings. In the midst of all that, I then say, Lord, Please, during the time of my suffering, may it not always be about me. May not always be talking about how bad I have it. But help me get my mind off myself and find the joy of being part of a community and serving my family. It's not easy. When a man drives in the driveway, his envision he's going to go in and sit down and relax. But you know this, guys. Your kids are going to meet you at the door and say, we need to go to the drugstore. I need poster paper. And you're thinking, lack of planning on your part is not an emergency on my part. Do I look like you're serving? And the answer is yes, because we are called to serve. So let's ask God as we learn that we're going to worship our Lord for suffering for our sins. But we're going to ask him for strength to face suffering, even if it's satanic suffering, and to see him do glorious things because we're praying in faith. The Bible says the effectual fervent prayers of a righteous man can accomplish much. So spend time in secret with God in your prayer life and ask him to give us power 
to do great things for Christ. Amen? Father, thank you so much for Jesus and how he suffered for us and how he rose from the dead. And as we face our sufferings, help us to be careful and tender with those who are suffering. If we think there's a demon, help us to learn how to pray in faith, perhaps with fasting. If people need medical treatment for mental illness, help us to help them, Lord. Help us to come alongside the brokenhearted and minister to them. But ultimately, help us never forget to celebrate the sufferings of Jesus. Lord, we love you, Jesus. We praise you. And I'll be the first one along with our people to say, Lord, we do believe. Help our unbelief. And help us to see ourselves as servants to others, not saints who need to be served by others. Lord, I thank you for all of the servants of Christ that work so hard in this church. Help us to serve our family, our spouses, even to serve our enemies as we advance the gospel and make disciples. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Here's a way you can serve. Before you leave, stack chairs and stacks of seven. Other men will be very thankful. So, and then say hi to someone. But just as you're talking, hey, how you doing? Just stack chairs and stacks of seven. It makes it 10 times faster for them to put away. Thank you. Or at least pretend you have a bad back so you can't. I'd love to help, but obviously I can't.